the last Welcome one, guys. Welcome back to Box Madness. Marathon session. Oh, the beeps are out. The horn was on. Oh, all right. We got it. We got the energy back. We're ready. Nathan Nathan is exhausted, but oh, we're chugging on. It's goddamn hockey's going to kill me. Chug it on. So chapter eight is the parasitism and decay of capitalism. So let's get to start. We have to examine yet another very important aspect of imperialism to which usually too little importance is attached in most of the arguments on this subject. We refer to parasitism, which is a feature of imperialism. As we've seen in the most deep-rooted economic foundation of imperialism is monopoly. This is capitalist monopoly, i.e. monopoly which has grown out of capitalism and exists in the general capitalist environment of commodity production and competition and remains in permanent and insoluble contradiction to this general environment. Nevertheless, like all monopoly, this capitalist monopoly inevitably gives rise to a tendency to stagnation and decay. Mm-hmm. As monopoly prices become fixed, even temporarily, the stimulus to technical and consequently to all progress disappears to a certain extent. And to that extent, also the economic possibility arises of deliberately retarding technical progress. For instance, in America, a certain Mr. Owens invented a machine which revolutionized the manufacture of bottles. The German Bottle Manufacturing Trust purchased Owens' patent but refrained from utilizing it. Certain monopoly cannot, under capitalism, eliminate competition in the world market completely and for a long period of time. And this, by and by, is one of the reasons why the theory of ultra-imperialism is so absurd. Other than the fact that its name is stupid. (laughs) It's stupid. (laughs) Certainly the possibility of reducing costs of production, increasing profits by introducing technical improvements, is an influence in the direction of change. Nevertheless, the tendency to stagnation and decay, which is a feature of monopoly, continues. And in certain branches of industry, in certain countries, for certain periods of time, it becomes predominant. So... You know, we're not saying there could never be a Walmart rising up like a phoenix to to knock off Sears. We're saying there's going to be one Walmart and one Sears at a time, so retail development's going to get kicked in the nards. Yerp. The monopoly of ownership is very extensive. Rich or well-situated colonies operate in the same direction. Moreover, imperialism is an immense accumulation of money capital in a few countries, which, as we've seen, amounts to 100 to 150 billion francs in various securities. I have to, I have to quibble with Lenin right now. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the few times I get to do it. Sure. Why the hell does he keep vacillating between francs and marks and pounds? Pick a goddamn currency, <laughs> Lenin. God damn it. <laughs> Hence the extraordinary growth of the class, or rather of the category of bondholders or rentiers. People who live by clipping coupons, who take no part whatever in production, whose profession is idleness. The export of capital, one of the essential economic bases of imperialism, still more completely isolates the rentiers from production and sets the seal of parasitism on the whole country that lives by the exploitation of the labor of several overseas countries and colonies. Uh, real world example time. Uh, so in 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 modern economics, if you're there, there is there's these whole concepts of you know clearing houses and bank. You know, you it, it is obfuscated. Again, if you anyone anyone who's listening to this who's who's taken any any series exams or any securities exams knows what the hell I'm talking about. And if you haven't, God bless your soul because you're a better person than I am. And Jesus, don't don't do it. It it hurts. Um. But they, you literally learn about that. There's a there's a whole strategy of investing that is, I'm going to take the exact same commodity, 
and I'm going to sell it in one in one region because it's selling it, it's not as valuable here and flip it over here to this other place where it's it's 50 cents higher so that I can make a very quick $2 profit off of it per share. I, I did nothing. I I provided nothing in that situation. I did not make a thing. I didn't do a thing. Oh, yeah. I literally looked at a thing and said move that widget to that widget. Haha, I've made a thing. And and that produced money. It is it it, it it's insanity. It's oh. absolute insanity. I mean, London's very explicitly, when it's talking about clipping coupons, it's, it's talking about stock. Yeah. People investing in stock. Yes. That's exactly what he's talking about. You know, yeah, I mean, you have these stockholders and these these Wall Street, you know, executives, and they're not necessarily executives in the banks. They're, they're pe- no. traders and, and whatnot. They're investment specialists or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and they're making money on doing nothing. Yeah. It's so explicitly that you exploit people that there are people that don't even have to own means of production to exploit. Yeah. They just feed off the entire apparatus. Well, and no, but at a certain point, money became the means of production. Mm. At a certain, this is what Lenin, this whole thing of this is, yeah. at a certain point, the means of production wasn't a factory. The means of production was, I have access to all the money. And that is the means of production unto itself. I have distilled it down to its purest yeah. form. And to be very clear, I mean, Marx mocked this explicitly because it's it's wrong. Money itself can't be the means itself. But they've completely, completely taken place of the social relation of the means of production. Yes. They've completely replaced it. Yep. So, you know, I mean, there, still, it's... We talked about it before. If, if Amazon suddenly, quote unquote, doesn't turn a profit, if they're acquiring more stuff, they're acquiring more means of production, they're growing, they're centralizing, they're better off. They don't really need the money. No. But the fact of the matter is money, we think of money because it's also taken that social relation. If you have stock and it grows, you, you've done nothing but you've used money to make money without any means of production ever passing any hands nope. other than in some vague far off transaction that you weren't part of. It's completely abstracted. Yep. And so what happens is the means of production become extract. That's also important. Think about America now, right? People, and I've said before, it's not totally a service economy. It's truly a transportation economy because yeah. we have to import things. But the fact that we extract, that we thrive, that we're parasites off the global south who mine the materials for our cell phones, who manufacture things, you know, who go, oh, made in Taiwan, made in China, whatever. It's the, of course it's made other places, right? I mean, it's not like we have no manufacturing here. But again, this is like monopolies. It's not like there's actually one company. We have very little manufacturing here. The reason that we're thought of as a service economy and we'd be correctly assessed as a transportation economy is because we just get to feed off the exploitation of the global south. That same feeding off is exactly why these stockholders and these investment bankers and stuff like that can exist. There are people that do nothing but use money to make money with no no clear means of production, you know, M- MCM exchange. It's yeah. straight M to M prime because it's been totally abstracted. Yep. And uh, so Lenin's going to turn to Hobbes and say, aggressive imperialism, which costs the taxpayers so dear, again, you know, I mean, more than half of our, our taxes go to war, mm-hmm. uh, which have so little value in the manufacturer and the trader is a source of great gain to the investor. The annual income of Great Britain derives from commissions in her whole foreign and colonial trade. Import and export is estimated by Sir Giffen at 18 million pounds, not francs or marks or whatever, uh, for 1889 and taken at 2.5% upon turnover of 800 million pounds. 
And Lenin says, great as the sum is, it does not explain the aggressive imperialism of Great Britain. This is explained by the 90 to 100 million pounds sterling revenue from, quote unquote, invested capital, the income of the rentier class. The revenue of the bondholders is five times greater than the revenue obtained from the foreign trade of the greatest trading company in the world. This is an e- the essence of imperialism and imperialist parasitism. For that reason, the term bondholder state or renter state, the stat, some German thing, or usurer state. There we go. Let's get to what it's really called. Yeah, usurer state is passing into current use in the economic literature that deals with imperialism. The world has been divided into a handful of money lending states on one side and a vast majority of debtor states on the other. Going back into quotes this time, Schultze Gavernitz, the premier place among foreign investments is held by those placed in politically dependent or closely allied countries. Great Britain grants loans to Egypt, Japan, China, and South America. Her navy plays the part of bailiff in case of necessity. Great Britain's political power protects her from the indignation of her debtors. So basically, you're in debt to me. Mm-hmm. Okay, Everybody owes me. If you don't do what I say, I'm going to topple you. Yeah. And you try to fight back, well, you're just one little country. I'm going to summon all these people that are under my reins, and we're going to co-topple you. You're fucked. Yeah. It's, it's pure, pure mafia relations. Thank you, sir. May I please have another? That's right. Uh, so Lenin's going to continue. Schilder believes that five industrial nations have become pronounced creditor nations. Great Britain, France, Germany, Belgium, and Switzerland. Holland does not appear on this list simply because it is industrial less developed. He asserts that the United States is creditor of only other American countries. Again, this is a little dated. little dated, I'd say. So going back to Schultz and it's Great Britain is gradually becoming transformed into industrial state, from an industrial state into a creditor state. Notwithstanding the absolute increase in industrial output and the export of manufactured goods, the relative importance of income from interest and dividends, issues, commissions, and speculation is on the increase for the whole national economy. In my opinion, it is precisely that is the forms of economic basis of imperialist ascendancy. The credit is more permanently attached to the debtor than the seller is to the buyer. And that makes sense. You take yeah. out a loan, you're stuck paying that loan back. You take a transaction, you're cut and run. You're done. Done. So we're going to jump into Die Bank. Nathan's famous. Die Bank! Die Bank. Die Bank. People in Germany are ready to sneer at the yearning observed in France of people to become rentiers. But they forget that as far as the middle class is concerned, the situation in Germany is becoming more and more like that in France. And again, you know, I mean, Britain has been the the bigger colonial stage, the bigger bank this whole time. Uh, but something I positioned at the beginning without, no, you know, I mean, not without reason Germany and France, their history is so tied together. They grow together. And obviously Great Britain is a big part of World War One and, and the Navy. I really see World War One largely as France and Germany. Again, in 1880, they jumped out on the stage of imperialism. They did it together. Now now they're financiers. Now, now they're imperial capitalists. And they're fighting each other. And that's where the whole thing breaks, where the whole thing revolves around in my head. And I think there's a I think there's a solid case to be made there. I mean, obviously, we we went through the we have the whole context episode of World sure. War. There are a lot of factors in play in trying to try, trying to distill that. But that is a good. That's that's a less. And I think that's a less. That is not the the no one takes that line. No modern. No one. No one. When you but what caused World War One? Well, it was France and Germany's you know financier interests colliding and having to be reconciled in some way. Yeah, that's not what you talk about. And it. it very likely should be. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the way it is. I mean, France and Germany have, have been at each other's throats for a, a few hundred years at that point. Yep. And all of a sudden, they become monopolists. They become bank states. And they step out to grab up the little bit that's left uncolonized. And all of a sudden, like we've talked about this whole book, there's nothing left to colonize. You have to start working about redivision. Mm-hmm. And the redivision is going to center around the old rivalry who stepped onto the stage together. Yep. So then it's going to continue. The rentier state is a state of parasitic decaying capitalism, and this circumstance cannot fail to influence the all, all the social political conditions of the countries affected generally and the two fundamental trends in the working class movements particularly. To demonstrate this is the clearest possible manner, we will quote Hobson, who will be regarded as more reliable witness since he cannot be suspected of leanings towards orthodox Marxism. Moreover, he is an Englishman who is very well acquainted with the situation in the country, which is the richest in colonies, in financial capital, and in imperialist experience. With the Boer War fresh in mind, Hobson describes the connection between imperialism and the interests of the financiers, the growing profits from war contracts, etc., as follows. While the directors of this definitely parasitic policy are capitalists, the same motives appeal to the special classes upon the workers. In many towns, most important trades are dependent upon government employment or contracts. The imperialism of the metal and shipbuilding centers is attributable to no small degree to this fact. So, again, you know, this is where we're really stepping into uh, the labor aristocracy and where it exists in the country-to-country relations. So, Lenin says, there is the first habit of the economic parasitism by which the ruling state has used its provinces, colonies, and dependencies in order to enrich its ruling class and bribe its lower class into acquiescence. Which we've talked about ad nauseum the last mm-hmm. two chapters. And point. Lenin says, and we would add to the economic possibility of such corruption, whatever its form may be, requires high monopolist profits. You don't have that without monopoly. Nope. So back to Hobson again. One of the strangest symptoms of the blindness of imperialism is the reckless indifference with which Great Britain, France, and other imperialist nations are embarking on this perilous dependence. Great Britain has gone the farthest. Most of the fighting by which we have won our Indian empire... (laughs) Yeah, I know. ...has been done by the natives in India, and more recently in Egypt, great standing armies are placed under British commanders. Almost all the fighting associated with their African dominions, except in the southern part, have been done for us by natives. You get someone on your side. Yep. You, you, again, you know, you can't just do the, well, well, listen to, to Syrians, listen to, listen to Venezuelans. You have to get, you have to figure out who the higher class is there. <laughs> And get them on your side, and and then your imperialist power. You can you can manipulate them. You can let them do what they want. And they do the fighting for you, uh, or you find someone with a grudge. You know, I mean, again, the, the CIA took took a book right out of that. Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, Hobson's going to continue. They're getting a lot of Hobson in this chapter, by the way. Uh, Hobson's going to continue. The greatest part of greater part of Western Europe might then assume the appearance and character already exhibited by the tracts of country in the south of England, in the Riviera, and in the tourist-ridden or residential parts of Italy or Switzerland. Little clusters of wealthy aristocrats drawing dividends and pensions from the Far East, with a somewhat larger group of professional retainers and tradesmen, and a large body of personal servants and workers in the transport trade, and in the final stages of production, the more perishable goods. All the main arterial industries would have disappeared, the staple foods and the manufacture flowing as a tribute from Asia and Africa. 
We have foreshadowed the possibility of an even larger scale alliance of Western states, a European federation of great powers, which so far from forwarding the cause of the world civilization, might introduce the gigantic peril of Western parasitism. A group of advanced industrial nations whose upper classes draw vast tribute from Asia and Africa, with, with they support the great tame masses of retainers, no longer engaging in the staple industries of agriculture and manufacture, but kept it in the performance of personal or minor industrial services under control of a new financial aristocracy. Let those who would scout such a theory as undeserving of consideration examine the economic and social contradictions of the southern England today, which are already reduced to this condition, reflect upon the vast extension of such a system, which might be rendered feasible by the subjugation of China to the economic control of similar groups of financiers, investors, and political and business officials, draining the greatest potential reservoir of profit the world has ever known in order to consume it in Europe. The situation is far too complex to play the world forces and far too incalculable to render this or any other in single interpretation of the future very probable. But the influences which govern the imperialism of Western Europe today are moving in this direction and unless counteracted or diverted, make towards such a consummation. You suck out the value from the workers from the global south. And vampires! We're back! That's right. We're back that's, to the vampires. That's where you position yourself. That's it's exactly what it does. And now you're dependent on it. If if you take away the minds of the cell phone industries with a, a trade war in China, now all of a sudden you're gonna be more compelled to colonize Africa. And of course the US has been expanding its military in Africa as China's been growing as an economic power. Of course they're very, very, very upset about Chinese loans mm -hmm. for infrastructure in Africa that counterbalance against the IMF and the World Bank and don't tie Africa to subjugation of the Chinese. Of course they hate that. What are they going to do without those resources? Like, just imagine Africa is independent all of a sudden, like all these drone bombs in Somalia just stop happening and America's pushed out and, and China's taken care of it and China's got their own cells colored. So now China has a monopoly on these resources of these very metals that we make cell phone processors and batteries and things like that out of. Where the fuck is the U.S.? <laughs> dead in the water, dead. And to get it back... They'd either have to go to war and dominantly win, which would be a very brutal war, which would be very hard to get the public behind. Or all of a sudden, they're no longer in charge. So these financial monopolists are very, very scared of this. There is a reason you're hearing about how evil China is with the Uyghur Muslims and stuff like that. It's a huge, huge threat to the U.S., and what Lenin and actually Hobson, we don't have to get Lenin. That was Hobson's analysis that Lenin agrees with. The very next sentence, Hobson is quite right. Mm -hmm. We see that today. We see it today. So Hobson is quite right. Unless the forces of imperialism are counteracted, they will lead to what he has described. He correctly appraises the significance of the United States of Europe. Again, you've seen the European Union. Oh, You've seen the I'm, yeah, European I'm, Union was predicted right fucking here. 1914. In the present conditions of imperialism. He should have added, however, that even within the working class movement, the opportunists who are for the movement predominant in most countries are 
quote unquote, working systemically and undeviatingly in this very direction. Imperialism, which means a partition of the world and the exploitation of other countries besides China, which means high monopoly and profits for a handful of very rich countries, creates the economic possibility of corrupting the upper strata of the proletariat and thereby fosters, gives form to, and strengthens opportunism. However, we must not lose sight of the forces which counteract imperialism generally, and opportunism particularly, which is naturally the social liberal Hobson is unable to perceive. So again, this is where Lenin's starting to get really, really explicit mm-hmm. uh, about the uh, 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 labor aristocracy. Yeah. So, and and something he's talking about here, you know, this is something that modern Marxists can can help with too, because imperialism should be a super focus right now, especially as we're as we're in the imperial core. Uh, but also to understand, you know, contradictions like the racism in this country, just like capitalism rose out of colonialism. But now we're talking about in this book, imperialism, colonialism is reproduced now by capitalism as it was dying away. As capitalism is done with it, now the rise of monopoly makes it reproduce more ferociously than ever. And this right. is the problem with, with again, the, the, the social liberals, the sock dems, all of that kind of stuff. They can at times accurately identify the 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 problem mm-hmm. they can accurately identify a, a a a symptom of what's happening and oh my god this is bad holy cow but they can never identify what the actual underlying solution their ideology do, will not let them reconcile what that is that they what, can't find the contradiction they they don't want to find the contradiction they want yeah. to find some some way to 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 mold it and make it okay and eliminate that one growth without attacking the underlying symptoms, which is what it, why it infuriates any true leftists when they when they hear this kind of stuff because it's like what the f- you can I you you're smart enough to be able to see this part of it. Why the f- can you not put the dots together to realize that it's the fucking core that's rotten and not not just these little extraneous problems that always have popped up always. Yeah, and there's an obvious negation and we need to negate the negation and they don't want to get to the negation. They no. just want to solve solve the symptoms. Mm-hmm. But the thing I was trying to draw a parallel with here. And, and, and you should see with the labor aristocracy is, again, you know, just like colonialism bore capitalism, bore it back. Racism uh, bore capitalism, like ra- racial relations are something that, that came explicitly out of colonialism. Racism predates capitalism because it comes straight from colonialism. Oh, yeah. Uh, but capitalism reproduces racism. Yep. Okay. Has to. And it absolutely has to. And we see that very explicitly with, you know, I mean, the rising of white nationalism, Uh, that reproduction of racism, you see what allows that is, is again, you know, an internal within country aristocracy, right? You're white. You're in the labor aristocracy. Bam. Not even, not even the labor aristocracy that relies on the imperialism of the U.S., which is central to this economy. But if you cut off everything in the borders and put on blinders and pretend like our our extreme oppression of the global south didn't matter and just looked within the U.S., you're a labor aristocracy over people of color. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you, you can see that. And so you should be able to draw those parallels, but also not get off the point of what Lenin's getting at here at the same time. And that's that's the important where we said you can't just cut this theory off in five minutes. You have no. to understand all of these things that branch out from it. Mm-hmm. 
The German opportunist Gerard Hildebrand, who was expelled from the party for defending imperialism and would today make an excellent leader for the so-called <laughs> Social Democratic Party of Germany, serves as a good supplement to Hobson by his advocacy of the United States of Western Europe. Without Russia. Without Russia, yeah. So <laughs> so NATO, but also the EU, which I, I think the EU also doesn't have Russia, so NATO slash the yeah. EU, yeah. Uh, for the purpose of a joint action against the African... Uh, Mm-hmm. It's a lesser route. Yeah. It, it, it's not the bad one. It's not the bad one, but we're not getting it. It's not into the it. bad one. Uh, it, yeah. But, but black. Uh, against the great Islamic movement or for the upkeep of a powerful army and navy against Sino Japanese coalition. The description of British imperialism in Schultze Gavernet's book reveals the same parasitical traits. The national income of Great Britain approximately doubled from 1865 to 1898, while the income from overseas increased ninefold in the same period. While the merit of imperialism is that it trains the yep, yep, uh-huh. African-descended person yep. to habits of industry, not without coercion, of course, the danger of imperialism is that Europe will shift the burden of physical toil, first agriculture and mining, then the more arduous toil and industry on the colored races and itself be content with the role of rentier. In this way, perhaps, pave the way for the economic and later the political emancipation of the colored races. Hmm. Oh, God. That seems a bit prescient. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Hi, Rust Belt. Wonder what your problem is? <laughs> Read Lenin. Yeah. Uh, continuing, Lenin says, an increasing proportion of land in Great Britain is being taken out of cultivation and used for sport, for the diversion of the rich. <laughs> Fucking golf. I just think of golf. golf. It's always time. golf. It's always golf. Scotland, says Schultz Gavin, speaking of golf. I'm about to say, the golf capital of the world! <laughs> is the most aristocratic playground in the world. It lives on its fat past in Mr. Carnegie. Oh, jeez. We're going to skip a little bit of stats and say, in speaking of the British working class, the bourgeoisie student of British imperialism at the beginning of the 20th century is obliged to distinguish systemically between the upper stratum of the workers and the lower stratum of the proletariat proper. The upper stratum furnishes the main body of cooperators, of trade unionists, of members of sporting clubs, and of numerous religious sects. The electoral system, which in Great Britain is still sufficiently restricted to exclude the lower stratum of the proletariat proper, is adapted to their level. Now, again, we do that. Oh, we are so... Great Britain has no idea how to exclude their underclass like we do. I, I know. my. I just... It, <sighs> Voter ID laws should jump out at you, but never mind before that on an explicit racial line, because remember, it's always an explicit racial line and then it's a pervasive racial line that gets mostly people of color and ties in some poor white people that trip mm-hmm. up there, too. And just just like cops and everything else. OK, voter ID laws are, are the new the new Jim Crow, the new thing that the Voting Rights Act and the MLK marches had to counteract. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and that and that's all came after women's suffrage. I, suffrage has been a long and recent battle in the United States, and you see, it's still a problem. And you see, it only gets you so much. It only gets you they access. Yeah, they adapt. They ad- at the end of the day, you can get every. You could get as much universal suffrage as you absolutely could. You could get you get maximum suffrage, complete everybody. They'll find a way. They'll gerrymander. Yeah. They'll, they'll redraw the lines. They'll keep, for whatever reason, insisting that we need Columbus Day to be a national holiday, but Election Day, fuck that shit. They'll, they'll continue to make sure that people in only two parties can ever have a chance, mm-hmm. both from a very wealthy infrastructure, because again, you're not really free if you don't have wealth in this country, to some explicit laws where 
Republicans and Democrats don't have to get signatures to get they, they just yeah. pick a candidate they, that allows them to go through all these elections and primaries and stuff. And your party can't do a primary because it has deadlines. And some of the deadlines, especially like New York, are absolutely absurd. We have to get huge amounts of signatures in a small window of time for a specific candidate. You can't run a primary. you no. got to have them lined up with, with you don't feel any Democratic choice of the people and then run out and get every signature you can scramble for, which takes tons of organization just to get in this election just to hope you can maybe get 1% of the vote because if some miracle happened and you got into that seat, you'd have a seat in Congress where you could do nothing but be part of the ruling class. I mean, it's it's, it's just a total sham. It's, exactly. It's, the whole thing is so explicitly blockaded for the ruling class. Um, in order to present the condition of the British working class in the best possible light, only this upper stratum, which constitutes only a minority of the proletariat, is generally spoken of. Weird how you just don't speak of the poor people. You always speak of the, the people who made it, who the people who, who scrapped together with that billion-dollar loan from their parents and, and tur- you know, saved from nothing in college. You never talk about the everyday people whose lives are ruined by trying to save and, and being swallowed in debt or whose lives are ruined because they just had no choice and a medical bill popped up. Uh, for instance, the problem of unemployment is mainly a London problem and that of the lower proletarian stratum, which is of little political moment. It would be better to say, which is of little political moment for the bourgeoisie politicians and the socialist opportunists. You have to appeal to the white working class voters. Like, it just, it's always so damn explicit. It, it, yeah. They the don't, problem they is, don't try and hide it. it. No, they don't. But they code it just enough that it's obvious to everyone with a lick of education on it. And they just lean on everybody being uneducated and everybody who is educated who could dominate them in mass numbers if we're educated together, having just a small enough number of educated people. And that's why, that's why we have to work to get each other together and united. It's not you have to go to school to be a good Marxist kind of a thing. Like, no, you just have to, we we have to educate, 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 and educate. Think about it like a classroom, right? You don't walk into a classroom and get told the teacher's smarter than you. They've always got to be smarter than you. They're better than you, so they're in charge. And when they decide to get up from their desk, you do whatever they say. But you also don't go into a classroom without a teacher and expect to get smarter. You go into a classroom, and there is an educated person who guides you in that education. Okay, That's what a vanguard is for. So another special feature of imperialism, which is connected with the facts we are describing, is the decline of emigration, so movement out from imperialist countries, and the increase of immigration to those countries from the backward countries where low wages are paid. Weird how people who are exploited by the exact same masters want to go where the chains are Mm gold-plated and get these higher wages. That's odd. But of course, you know, the the right wing, well... Why are people always wanting to come to America for the American dream? And you're setting aside the bullshit reputation and the fact that they'd rather be behind the barrel of your gun rather than staring it down. You have robbed them of their resources and they're going to where the resources are. Mm -hmm. Uh, So a little bit lower, Lennon says, in the United States, immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe are engaged in the most poorly paid occupations, while American workers provide the highest percentage of overseers of the better paid workers. Imperialism has a tendency of creating privileged sections even among the workers and of detaching them from the main proletarian masses. You want to know why we have a problem here with the radicalizing that we just said? Mm -hmm. 
Because we have imperial hegemony. Yep. Again, we have to, have to, have to battle the imperial hegemony. That means fighting the wars. That means fighting the sanctions. That means fighting the little wars and the genocides that people don't know exist. That means fighting the lies. Mm -hmm. And that means, of course, educating people on how this benefits them. Yep. It must be observed in Great Britain the tendency of imperialism to divide the workers in this way, to encourage opportunism among them, and to cause temporary decay in the working class movement, revealed itself much earlier than the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th centuries. For two important features of imperialism were reserved in Great Britain in the middle of the 19th century, vast colonial possessions and a mon monopolist position in world markets. Marx and Engels systemically trace this relation between opportunism and the, and the labor movements and the imperialistic features of British capitalism for several decades. For example, in October 1858, Engels wrote to Marx, so now we're finally getting a little Marx. A little bit. And Lenin saying, look, these guys saw these divisions of the proletariat. They saw these, and we've talked about it before, there's subclasses. Oh, yeah. There's several subclasses. The important thing is the classes, the contradiction, the negation that must be negated. But you have to understand the complexity, the internal negations in there. And so the classes are more important than the subclasses, and unifying the classes is what's important. That's central. You have to get that first. But you'd be an idiot not to see these subclasses and not to see how they're abused to divide workers up. Mm -hmm. So Engels, or Marx says to Engels, the English proletariat is becoming more and more bourgeois, so that this utmost bourgeois of all nations is apparently aiming ultimately at the possession of a bourgeois aristocracy and a bourgeois proletariat as well as a bourgeoisie. For a nation in which exploits the whole world, this is, of course, to a certain extent, justifiable. Yep. Lenin continues almost a quarter century later in a letter dated August 11th, 1881. Engels speaks of the worst type of British trade unions, which allow themselves to be led by men who have been bought by capitalists or at least are in their pay. Hmm. That sounds that sounds familiar. I wonder. Yeah. So this is a letter to Kautsky back when Kautsky seemed revolutionary and was listening to Lenin. Uh, dated 1882. And Engels writes to Kautsky, you ask me what the English worker think about colonial policy. Well, exactly the same as they think about politics in general. The same as what the bourgeoisie think. There is no workers' party here. There are only conservatives and liberal radicals. This should sound very, very uh -huh. And the workers gaily share the feast of England's monopoly of the world market and the colonies. Engels expressed similar ideas in the press and has prefaced the second edition of The Condition of the Working Class in England, which appeared in 1892. Lenin continues, we thus see clearly the causes and effects. The causes are, one, exploitation of the whole world by this country, two, its monopolistic possession of the world market, and three, its colonial monopoly. And the effects are, a, a, one, a section of the British proletariat becomes bourgeois. Okay, just substitute an American. Uh -huh. Two, a section of the proletariat permits itself to be led by people who are bought by the bourgeoisie or at least who are in their pay. The imperialism of the beginning of the 20th century completed the partition of the world among very few states, each of which today exploits, i.e. draws super profits from, a part of the world only a little smaller than that which English exploited in 1858. Each of them by means of trust, cartels, finance capital, and debtor and creditor relations occupies a monopoly position world market. Each of them enjoys some degree a colonial monopoly. The distinctive feature of the present situation is the prevalence of economic and political conditions which could not but increase the irreconcilability between opportunism and the general and vital interests of the working class movement. Embryonic imperialism has grown into a dominant system. 
Capitalist monopolies occupy the first place in economics and politics. The division of the world has been completed. On the other hand, instead of an undisputed monopoly by Great Britain, we see a few imperialist powers disputing among themselves for the right to share in this monopoly. And this struggle is characteristic of the whole period of the beginning of the 20th century. Opportunism, therefore, cannot now triumph in the working class movement of any country for decades as it did in England in the second half of the 19th century. But in a number of countries, it has grown ripe, overripe, and rotten, and has become completely merged with a bourgeoisie policy in the form of social chauvinism. Whew! That's a paragraph! That, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so next time we'll be we'll be digging into Kautsky a little more, but... Uh, of course, because you can never get enough Kautsky! Right, but if... For some reason, you went through the first seven chapters and didn't go, oh, yeah, that's important for today. Oh, yeah, that's important for today. Uh, oh, yeah, that's important for today. I really, really, really hope you heard the second half of chapter eight and went, oh, fuck, that's important for today. Yes. Speaking of things that are important for today, it's Wall Street Journal Opinion Piece of the Week. Oh, God damn there it. There wasn't a great time to insert it in the middle. I didn't want to derail the flow. Oh. But the people, the people, David, are clamoring. And they what they're clamoring for is the opinions of the Wall Street Journal. Okay. In this week's edition. Yes. Netflix false story is defaming me. Oh, no. Now, who, who could be, who, who would Netflix be defaming? Oh, no. This is this is concerning. Well, well, Netflix false story of the Central Park Five is oh defaming Linda Fairstein, the prosecutor of the Central Park Five, because she's the real victim here, ladies and gentlemen. Oh. I'm not going to read you any of this piece. I just need you to know that there is an extensive opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal where the lead prosecutor of the Central Park Five claims that she is being mean to. There's, I'm going to tie this into something else terrible, and this is going to happen. If you don't see the militarization... I mean, again, you know, there's no reason not to realize that those are concentration camps holding immigrants across the southern United States. That's what it is. There's no reason not to realize that the troop worship is not just for the cause of imperialism, but it's total fealty. You know, I mean, Democrats, the ones that seem less brazen in this, and they spell it out explicitly, the guns belong to cops and and please kill us. Please kill us. Right. Um, Is what they're saying. You know, the the adoration of cops they've come out to a new face so we've we've gone from feel bad for the troops as the real victims to vietnam to support every war the military is our heroes to you know the cops are here and these are all underlying things that have been there a little bit but they're rising the surface so then all of a sudden cops have gotten all the way up from from the other oppressors in the armed guard of the ruling class that that we just unreally lionize to clumped in clumped in with the military, right? Mm-hmm. And, of course, there's a lot of crossover there between cops and military, like the National Guard mm-hmm. especially. Um, so you see all the thin blue line, all the bullshit. So the new trend that's evolved out of it, and I don't know if this is – again, these things can sometimes be purposeful by someone organization or group of people driving it. Most of the time they're pretty organic and they're just ideological hegemony among the ruling class. And capitalism expands, expands, expands. So sometimes they kind of even expand these ideas. 
The trendy thing for a little while is to go first responders. <laughs> yeah, baby. It's If you think about it for a few seconds, the people that murder you with guns and throw you in cages and murder people in other countries with guns, they're only lionized because we tell ourselves to. You don't see any explicit life saved. So then you look at fire departments and and uh, paramedics. paramedics. Oh, they actually save lives. And for a long time, fire departments, there's been people that even totally opposed to cops and they, you know, but fire departments have had a lot of cop adjacent people there from the guns and hoses fundraisers to, you know, I mean, people that are trying to people that are volunteer firefighters and also cops. Right. Cops spraying down black people with with hoses during some of the, you know, Jim Crow South oppression. Mm-hmm. Not that you had to be on either force to be racist there or in America now in general, but nonetheless, you know, uh, it's been a tool there before. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of fascist cop adjacency in fire departments, but fire departments actually save lives. And for the mm-hmm. most part, they're not necessarily cop adjacent, but they they become more. And one wave to get all the there, – there's, again, some anti-cop firefighters and very pro-cop firefighters and even ones that are cops. And then there's a huge glob of neutral in the middle. And one way to get a lot of those neutral people to be pro-cop people, especially since the rise of the thin blue line, is to put them together. Mm-hmm. They're first responders. So now I'm a hero too. These guys are heroes and so now I'm a hero. And so you see like all the, oh, we give discounts for military and veterans and first responders and first responders and first responders. And so it's this clump word where you think, oh, paramedics are going to save my – if my house is on fire, if I get in a car wreck, I, an ambulance needs to come. First responders, they're going to save my life. Right. So now now that clumps together, cops and other troops as actual lifesavers, not these supposed liberators and protectors or whatever bullshit. And again, you know, the you can see the right wing, the, the crying eagle at, at the falling twin tower, like obnoxious militarism bleed over in the first responder language. Oh, yeah. And now as if cops and all the, the Chicago PD and Chicago fire shows and all those dramas aren't enough. There's a new TV show coming out. I think it's on Fox. It's First Responder TV. Go in the cars and ride with them like cop style. And they'll, of course, pick out the clips that are the most dramatic, uh, that, that make them look the best. Now you can ride with the heroes, saving lives, see the everyday danger in the light. And, of course, it's going to make it look super dangerous and stuff. I guarantee you there's going to be some kind of fucking episode of First Responder TV where this prosecutor from the Central Park Five is involved and gets fucking absolved. I, I, I guarantee it happens. Guarantee. I, I can't. I it, it's, it, it, and I tried to explain this to someone the other day, and I I, I just I just don't know how much clearer to make it. Cops are reactionary, and okay. not even in just the overarching sense that that you believe punitive measures will will stop crime. Yeah. That and that and that that reaction they are reactionary, and the fact that they are they 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 see they're fascist, and oh, yeah. that that is their their intent. The police are not. proactively stopping crime from happening. No, They are strictly there to show up later and cause more problems than they're ever going to solve. Yeah. In almost every situation. And the hope hope is that down the road it deters people. Maybe. Supposedly, maybe it deters people down the road if you show up to an already bad situation and fill out paperwork, maybe beat the shit out of a guy, throw someone in handcuffs, put him in a cage, shoot him. Those are really the only five possibilities they have. That, that's it. Those are the five possibilities they have. They, no other choices. The most peaceful one of those is fill out some useless fucking paperwork that gets filed away and maybe used against you in court later. That's it. Those are the only five things they can do. They're not stopping you from getting robbed. No. 
They're not preventing you from getting murdered or, or, or anything no. like that. They, they, that's not what they do. And of course, of course, I, people have said for a while, you know, no cops at Pride and stuff like that. Of course, during Pride, and they're trying to do this this straight Pride parade. Bullshit. Oh, Christ. There was an explicit Nazi protest going through Pride. And the cops weren't protecting Pride or being neutral or keeping the peace. They were very, very explicitly protecting the Nazis. Mm-hmm. It's what they do. It's yeah. just what they do. So, that, uh, uh, that has been the thing that you all, all always, I'm sure, ask for. Everyone everyone comes to Martin Anis <laughs> for, for... Long, depressing Wall, endings. Wall Street Journal Opinion Piece of the Week. <laughs> God, it's the segment that makes me want to die. All right, guys. Well... Coming up, we are we are coming down the home stretch yeah, of, uh, yeah. of imperialism. Only got a couple left. Got a couple left. Got a couple left, and uh, and 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 this is I, I guess does this qualify as a team? There, there we have we have something fun in the works that will kind of it will it should be coalescing around the time we finish this and around yeah. the around, hopefully it'll be coming should out be right around right around the time we finish imperialism. Um, so so stay tuned. There could we, we're gonna do some more we're gonna do some more fun stuff that is obviously still right in our wheelhouse of we're we're gonna read some more Marxist text and we're gonna do it with with some fun people. Mm-hmm. All right, and see you next week. In the meantime, bye. bye.